I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we as we look at our passage this morning. Um, really, just uh, just seven verses, um, but again, no promises of a, of a short sermon. Um, Luke chapter twenty, uh, verses uh, nineteen or sorry twenty to twenty six. But I'm going to read verse nineteen as well. Um, we we talked about it last week, but it really it it it's really a hinge verse that that points to what's going on here as well. So Luke twenty nineteen to twenty six. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of our Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we see things here that, that on one level are difficult to understand in their application. But Lord, they are far more difficult to walk out in their application. Lord, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we are standing on holy ground as we do when we approach all of Scripture and we are confident that your Holy Spirit will accomplish that which he sends your word to accomplish. So we pray that your word would go forth with power in hearts this morning and that you would help us all, Lord, to see that you are the Lord and that all of life is truly under your sovereign control but is also under your, uh, under your control as our king. Help us, I pray, Lord, to bow ultimately to you. Lord, to bow to the authorities that you have placed in our lives as obedience unto you. Lord, give us the boldness and the strength to obey when it's difficult and help us to know when we must disobey when it is necessary. But may we all do it with, with a conscious desire for obedience out of obedience to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Human history is fraught with war and rumors of war. Many wars are fought between nations, but wars are also often fought within nations, so-called civil war. Now there's an oxymoron, as if a war could ever be civil. A civil war, broadly speaking, is a, is a conflict between a country's government and a group of its citizens. 
all war is tragic, but civil war even more so. In the year 1215, a, a group of barons threatened civil war against King Richard because of his abuses of the church and feudal law, custom, and taxation. They threatened civil war, and the rebellion, their rebellion resulted in the signing of the Magna Carta that declared that the king of England is subject to the rule of law, and, and it also preserved the liberties of free men. The English Peasants' Revolt in the year 1381 also came in the from the imposition of a poll tax. As we'll see, rebellions are often centered around taxation. The rebellion was crushed, but not before many nobles were beheaded. Or the American Revolution, in which American colonists frustrated by taxation without representation in the English Parliament rebelled against the king. And in 1775, open war began and it continued until 1783. Or in 1789, as a result of economic depression and a, a rise in food prices and unemployment and exploitive taxation, the, the, the French Re Revolution resulted in which, in which French peasants rose up and overthrew the monarchy, be, beheading King Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette. By the time the conflict was ended, the revolutionaries had executed over 17,000 people. Now, in some of these examples, the conflict comes as a result of the tyranny of wicked rulers. In others, the conflict comes from the rebellion of wicked citizens. And in many, it's hard to say. In most, it's actually a combination of both. In fact, all conflict stems from rebellion of man against God. This is played out in biblical history. As man rebelled against God in the, the garden in Genesis 3. And the first murder takes place in Genesis 4. It's played out in, in Old Testament history, which, which centers around the nation of Israel. It recounts wars between Israel and her neighbors and recounts civil war within Israel as well. So then war with God leads to war with your fellow man. As I've said many times, every human relationship is the relationship between two sinners. And in, maybe not all, but in the vast majority of human conflicts, both sides are guilty. But in the conflict between man and God, only man is guilty. Only man is guilty. And that is certainly the case in the conflict that we see here in Luke 20 this morning. We're talking about the growing conflict between the Jewish authorities and Jesus. As I said, this is quite often, rebellion comes as a result of taxation. And so taxation was the lightning rod for this conflict as well as the Jewish authorities tried to corner Jesus regarding a Roman poll tax by asking whether it was lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not. It's a devious question. These spies wanted a, a yes or no answer. Answering no, you shouldn't pay the taxes to Caesar, would mean that, that they could, the authorities could hand 
Jesus, the religious authorities could hand Jesus over to the Romans under the charge of sedition. But answering yes would mean that they could discredit Jesus before the people who hated the Roman rule. And so they posed their question in order to try to entrap Jesus, but Jesus, as we'll see, used their question to set his people free to serve God and used his answer to the question to silence the trappers. So then in verses 20 to 22, we'll see the trap set. Verses 23 to 25, we'll see the trap sprung. And then verse 26, we'll see the trappers silenced. So first of all, the trap set, verses 20 to 22. After a, a year of, of traveling throughout Judea and Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem. It's the final week of his ministry. His crucifixion is only a few days away. So Jesus went to the temple and cleared out the merchants, and then he did what he had so often done throughout his ministry, is he taught the good news of the kingdom of God. But the Sanhedrin, who we, we understand is the, the Jewish ruling council, they didn't like it. They did what they had so often done as well. They revealed their hatred of Jesus. They wanted to destroy Jesus, but his popularity with the people prevented them from being able to fulfill their wicked plans. So they tried to discredit Jesus before the people. Remember, they asked him where his authority came from, and he responded with a question. He asked them whether John the Baptist's authority came from heaven or men. And these, these men of the Sanhedrin did not believe that John's authority came from heaven, but they didn't want to answer the truth because they thought that the people might stone them to death because the people believed that John was a prophet. So there, Jesus effectively silenced the, the men of the Sanhedrin. And then, as we saw last week, Jesus turned up the heat. He told the parable of the wicked tenants who attacked the servants that the landowner had sent to get some of the fruit of the vineyard for him. And these wicked tenants killed, they, first they beat these tenants, and then they, when he sent his son, they actually killed the landowner's son, thinking that they would get the inheritance for themselves. Jesus said that the landowner would, would destroy, he would kill those tenants. And in telling this parable, this, this story with this message, Jesus was indicating that he is the son, he is the stone that the builders rejected, that he has become the cornerstone, and that those who fall on him would be broken to pieces. And if the when he falls at anyone, he will crush them. The Sanhedrin knew that, that Jesus wasn't just talking about himself. These men of the Sanhedrin knew that he was talking about them. And they immediately sought to lay hands on him. They wanted to arrest him. But again, they feared the people. So they held back. They still couldn't destroy Jesus, so again they tried to discredit him. They did two things. Look at verse 20. They watched him and they sent spies. They watched him and they sent spies. So they, they put him under surveillance. Now the, the word the word that is, is used here literally means that they were hired to lie in wait. This is surveillance. The word is, is used to describe armed forces that are, are watching for a criminal. 
were also used of, of an eagle chasing a bird. Now these men have been watching Jesus like an eagle chasing a bird. Ready? They're waiting to strike, to try to take him down. In fact, they've been watching Jesus like an eagle since all the way back at the beginning of his ministry, back in, in Luke chapter 5. But now they, the religious leaders of Israel, have been effectively silenced by Jesus' responses to their verbal attacks. They've been rele relegated to the shadows. These are the leaders of Israel, remember. And so, so now they, they're sending spies the shadows sneakily trying to entrap Jesus. They're lying in wait, doing their, their dirty work for them. And Matthew and Mark tells us the, the identity of these spies, that they were Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians. Can we just stop and think about that for a moment? There was no love lost between the Pharisees and the Herodians. They hated each other. Because the Herodians supported Rome and wanted Rome to rule over Israel. They, they were supporters of, of Herod. They wanted him to rule over Israel for Rome. But the Pharisees hated Herod and wanted Herod out of their country. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated Jesus, or so they hated each other, but they hated Jesus more. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these Herodians and Pharisees were willing to work together to try to get rid of Jesus. And we'll see this diabolical alliance strengthened before the end. These spies pretended to be sincere. And the word literally means that they pretended to be righteous. They went to Jesus with a question, appearing as though they really wanted to know what he thought. Like Ghislaine Maxwell's defense lawyer cross-examined the victims only to try to cut holes in their accounts, to try to free the client. It's the, incidentally, this, this lawyer who defended Ghislaine Maxwell also defended Al-Qaeda terrorists on two separate occasions. I don't know how she sleeps at night. But Luke here tells us the motive of the spies, that they might catch him in something that he said and so deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They couldn't destroy Jesus themselves, but they wanted to get the Romans to destroy Jesus for them. This reference to the governor is also a reference to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who we're going to encounter in a few weeks. So you see what they're doing here, that they, they could be rid of Jesus and they could blame it on the Romans was perfect. But there's more to their plan even than that, as we'll see in a moment. Before asking their question, they, they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but, but truly teach the way of God. These men describe Jesus in three ways. He speaks straight, he's impartial, and he teaches God's way with truth. The irony in this is that in these three things, they were 100% correct. Jesus is all of these things. Jesus does all of these things. But these men were none of those things and did none of those things. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. They didn't mean to be right. 
They didn't mean a word that they said. They were using flattery. They were, they were trying to deceive Jesus by pumping his tires. They wanted to put Jesus off his guard. Friends, if somebody opens a conversation with you with flattery, you'd be wise to double your guard. Flattery is a snare even in its own right because it, it strokes your pride. Strokes your pride. Now we know that Jesus didn't have to fight pride, but you and I do. Jesus knew that their words were smoother than butter, yet there was war in their hearts. Psalms 55, 21. You don't have to look very hard to find people who by smooth talk and flattery deceive the hearts of the naive. Romans 16, 18. And we know that Jesus is far from naive. He's the opposite of naive. So now comes the question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now this, this tribute here describes a, a poll tax. Now this diff is different from the, the customs tax that we saw with Levi the tax collector back in, in Luke 5 and, and elsewhere we, as we met these tax collectors. These were were road tolls and duties on goods or that, that the tax collectors gathered. But this tribute was, was a head tax, probably a denarius a year for every adult male in a household. And this tax was to be made directly to, was made directly to Caesar. As we've heard many times, a, a denarius or even a few denarii was not a lot of money for most families. It was about the, the wages of a day laborer, one day's wages for a whole year. But the Jews hated this tax as a symbol of Roman occupation. The denarius was a, was a Roman coin, and this was Israel. And every, every time that, that that coin was used, it was, was represented the fact that this was a country that was occupied by a foreign army. And, and this sort of thing, foreign armies occupy the countries all the time, but, but Israel was, was God's promised land. And here it was occupied, as it had been so many times, by a foreign army. So the Jews hated the tax, but they hated the coin itself. You see, Daenerys was seen by the Jews as idolatrous. Because the coin, the coin bore the image of Caesar, and it was viewed as blasphemous because the inscription on the coin read, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus, Latin, for Caesar Augustus Tiberius son of divine Augustus. You can look at the coin. It's actually there on the cover of your bulletin. You see the cover of what, it looks, of what the coin looked like. See what it's saying here. Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, his father, Augustus Caesar. This coin was saying Caesar is God. Blasphemy. And then having a picture of someone who claimed to be God. Idolatry. So the Jews hated this coin. So they're asking, was, was it lawful in accordance with God's law for them to pay the tax? Now, it's, it's not very well known, but according to, to Josephus, the, the ancient Roman historian, well, Jewish who became Roman sympathizer, he said that the Sanhedrin actually helped to collect the tax. So, so these men that had come to Jesus 
were themselves tax collectors of this tax. Isn't that ironic? Isn't it hypocritical? Now, these men might have seen this, this tax as a, a necessary evil that allowed them a, a level of freedom under Rome, but it's also likely that they saw it as an opportunity to take a cut from themselves. So they're trying to get Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus. He's, he's just been proclaimed king at his triumphal entry. They're trying to get Jesus to declare himself as a rival to Caesar. Now remember, in, in just in verse 20, Luke had, had referred to the authority of the governor. And now he tells us that in verse 21, that these, that these spies are going to Jesus in his authority as a teacher. Right? So, so they're, on the one hand, there's, they're, they're recognizing the authority of, of the governor of Rome, but, but now these men are also recognizing the authority in, on one level of Jesus, at least purporting to do so. Because even in asking their question, they're actually affirming Jesus' authority. They're saying that Jesus is a, is a Jewish rabbi and that he has the right to answer questions along these lines. But Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority even further in his answer, and it's an answer that they are not expecting. But you can see the trap that they've set, can't you? It's very devious. They tried to corner Jesus with a question just as he had cornered them with his question about the authority of John the Baptist. Again, it was a yes or no question. In their minds, Jesus would be trapped no matter which way he answered. As you've seen, if he, Jesus said no, then they hand him over to Pilate as an insurrectionist and the Romans would execute him. But if he said yes, then they could discredit Jesus as a Roman sympathizer and the people would reject him. So in the minds of, of these, these men, the, the representatives of the Sadducee, of the, uh, of the Sanhedrin, it's win-win for them and lose-lose for Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to pit his authority against Roman authority. And if he doesn't do that, then they can say he has no authority. Remember, their, their plan A was to have Jesus killed. They wanted to destroy him. Their plan B was to make him lose popular support. Again, just think about how cunning this was. Again, if it worked, they could achieve their plan A. They could do whatever they, they wanted to Jesus and the people wouldn't stop them. But what they didn't understand that this was God's plan A all along. God never has a plan B. With God, it's always plan A. The omniscient God declares the end from the beginning. He didn't just know the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. With, with God, omniscience is omnipotence. He's accomplishing all things for his glory and for the good of his church. So Jesus was using all of this, this conflict with these men, to expose their hatred of him, knowing full well that they would succeed in handing him over to the Romans for crucifixion. This is the plan all along. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's speaking there to the, the, the Jews who handed 
Jesus over to the Romans. In God's plan. God's word teaches, teaches God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so we embrace both. So the spies have, have set their trap. Now let's see this, the trap sprung. Verse 23 to 25. Verse 23. Jesus perceived their craftiness. He perceived their craftiness. The same word is used to describe Satan's cunning in tempting Eve in 2 Corinthians 11.3. But Jesus saw right through their treachery. Matthew and Mark highlight the fact that Jesus was aware not just of their treachery, but of their hypocrisy. Now Jesus does just what the spies said he would do. He speaks God's truth. And he speaks God's truth, God's truth straight and without partiality. So he says to them, show me a denarius. Show me a denarius. Now think about this. These men were actually able to pull a denarius out of their pouch. They're answering their own question. In their mind, it's okay to have these coins, obviously because they have them in their pocket. And exposing their hypocrisy. So Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they answered Caesar's. Again, the coin read Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti, Phileas Augustus, which means Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of divine Augustus. So Jesus says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are, are God's. This was not what they were expecting. This is not what they're expecting. With this one sentence, Jesus silences them, as we'll see, and teaches at the same time a great deal about government and its proper place. With this one statement, Jesus is actually legitimizing Roman rule. He's legitimizing the Roman occupation of Israel. Just think about this in its original context. Think about this as, as, as Jesus said this. Think about the response of the, of the people. Rome was a wicked nation. The so-called Pax Romana, the Roman peace, wasn't peace. It was war. Roman centurions had, had gone throughout the known world conquering wherever they went. And so the, the, this was not peace. This was an oppressive regime. They conquered everyone in their path, including Israel. And Rome was an occupying army, and Jesus said, was saying, submit to them in this tax. But Jesus is also putting Rome in its proper place. We've just seen that, that Tiberius Caesar claimed to be deity. He claimed to be God. So he demanded not just allegiance, but worship. Jesus is saying here that only God is to be worshipped. Render to God that which is God's. But more than that, he's, he's saying that, that God is the, the ultimate authority. So by commanding them to pay the tax, Jesus was placing the authority of Caesar under the authority of God. Of God. 
Moreover, Jesus was placing the responsibility to pay taxes to Caesar under the responsibility to honor God. Now, as this is, is played out, this is sometimes called two-kingdom theology. Two-kingdom theology. And two-kingdom theology is, is often misunderstood as a, a separation, a strict separation between church and state, but it isn't. That's not what two-kingdom theology is. Two-kingdom theology, as it was understood by the Reformers, highlights the fact that the, the God is over all the kingdoms. That he is over the kingdom of the government. Augustine, in his, his book, City of God, explained that, that as human beings, we live in the city of God, and we live in the city of man. And we have responsibilities to both. But both responsibilities ultimately belong to God. Brothers and sisters, you are part of the kingdom of Christ, and you are also part of the kingdom of Canada. And you have responsibilities to both, but your responsibilities as a citizen to the kingdom of Canada ultimately are because of your responsibilities as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So then we, we understand that that we, we can submit to, we must submit to government out of submission to God. And this, this really proves to be a, a very helpful corrective as we, we try to navigate the difficulties of, of walking through this world. It, it avoids us from, from just retreating, right? from going and hiding out of the mountains somewhere. Because we have responsibilities as, as citizens before God. It also helps to keep us from equating this kingdom or, or any earthly kingdom with the kingdom of God. And so we're, we're not trying to, to effectively make the, the kingdom of God be Canada. And I, I think this is, this is something that, that frankly, our, our American neighbors are... are more are, are more prone to doing that than we are here in this country here because we have no illusions about about our government and, and and what it's all about. So the question isn't about submission to Christ or submission to Caesar. It's submission to Caesar out of submission to Christ. Listen to this quote from Leon Morris. He says Jesus' response left no room for an accusation of disloyalty to Caesar but also stress loyalty to God. Jesus is saying that we are citizens of heaven and earth at the same time. This does not mean dividing life into compartments, or some would say, and you've heard the term probably a lot of times, into spheres, as though God was not supreme in all of life, or the duties of either aspect of our citizenship could be discharged without reference to those of the other. See what he's saying here? So it's, it's our, we have, we're citizens of two kingdoms, and there's responsibilities that, that they go back and forth. Okay, he goes on. It, it means that we can neglect neither loyalty. The state must be respected and its directions complied with in the sphere that God allots it. So then, in the sense that, that it's, again, it's not compartmentalized, but it has its proper place. It follows that the state rightly collects taxes to discharge its functions. So in other words, the, the two kingdoms aren't, aren't, again, they're not compartmentalized in, into different spheres. It's it's not just as though there's there's an earthly kingdom and, and a separate and, and a separate spiritual kingdom. Both are part of God's kingdom. 
We're going to see that very soon the Sanhedrin is going to deliver Jesus over to the Romans. And when, when Jesus is before Pilate, he's going to say before Pilate in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that it might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Again, we do not advance the gospel with the sword. We don't achieve spiritual ends with fleshly means. And really, uh, apart from here in, in John 18 and the passage we're looking at, the, at this morning, the, the, there's really not a whole lot about the role of government in the New Testament. But we need to be very careful to avoid the, the pitfalls of either of, of equating th this present world with the spiritual reign of Christ. We need to be very careful not to equate this present world with the spiritual reign of Christ. This is an error that, that adherents of the, the so-called social gospel make, and also those who adhere to what's called theonomic reconstructionism. We'll define that in a second. So that those who adhere to the social gospel try to, to make um, every, they try to equate the kingdom of God with social justice. For them, that's the kingdom of God. And with the other, those who are, are trying to, theonomic reconstructionism means, means God's, reconstruct God's law as the law of the land. And this is gaining a lot of traction in, in reformed circles right now. These people are, are, are trying to make every institution and sphere of society conform to Christian laws and to the Christian worldview. Okay, it's, it's gaining traction. But you will not find either in the New Testament. The emphasis is on spiritual advance of the kingdom by spiritual means. We need to understand that and recognize that. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. We also need to look, though, at Revelation 11, 11, 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So here we have this tension again of the, the already not yet. Right? So there's a time in which, which all these kingdoms will, be, will, will recognize the true kingship of Christ above everything. So right now, there's a sense in which the, the kingdom of God is, is spiritual and partially hidden. Now, the church is one of the ways that, this, that the kingdom of God is made visible. But, but, for, but if, if you were just to look at things from a, the levels we're looking at, it looks like the church loses. Right? We pray for our brothers and sisters every week who, who are being killed for their faith, being expelled from their, their homes, from their villages because of Christ. As we see error, see, see heresy and, and, and all sorts of blasphemies encroaching even on the visible church. It looks like the church is losing. We need to understand, though, that one day God's kingdom is going to pervade the whole physical realm and will be fully visible in the new heavens and the new earth. And again, Christ rules over both, and Christ rules now over both. So Jesus is going to say also to Pilate in, in John 19, 11, you would have no authority at all over me unless it had been given to you from above. So Jesus is again legitimizing, in a sense, the, the rule of the Romans. He has been, Pontius Pilate, as the, the viceroy of Caesar Tiberius, has been given by God 
authority to rule over Israel, even authority to kill his son in his humanity. So then practically speaking here, so we're trying to understand how we, we live in, in two kingdoms. So then what do you owe Caesar? What do you, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, and as a citizen of the kingdom of Canada, what do you owe Caesar? Well, the easy one is pay your taxes. Right? That's the easy application, pay your taxes. Even if the government is using the, their, the, your tax money for things that you vehemently disagree with. I strongly, strongly disagree with the use of our tax dollars for funding abortion and for people to have gender reassignment surgery. Our tax dollars pay for that. I vehemently disagree with that. But I would say that a Christian living in Jesus' day also vehemently opposed the things that the Romans were about, and Jesus says, pay taxes to them. Pay your taxes. But you pay your taxes not to give tribute ultimately to Caesar, or to the Canadian government, but you pay your taxes out of your duty to God. Out of your duty to God. But you don't just have, owe Caesar your money. Turn, please, to Romans 13. And, and obviously you don't have time for a, a biblical exegesis of this whole passage, but we'll get there in a couple years, Lord willing, when I finally get to Romans. plan is here, Luke, then Acts, then Romans. If the Lord tarries or lets me live that long. But Jesus is saying here, look at down, cut down to verse 7 for a second. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, and revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So it's not just paying taxes, but, but revenue and respect and honor. And again, this, this word where Jesus says, pay, pay, it's pay what's owed. It's pay back what is owed to these, these individuals. So Paul is, is here grounding, go back now to the beginning of, of Romans 13, is, is paying, he's grounding, paying taxes and submission and honor in the fact that these authorities have been instituted by God. They've been instituted by God, verse 1. So God sets up one ruler and takes down another. But God is sovereign over it all. And we know that God is, is actually, as it goes on here, to talk about the, the, the purposes that the governing authorities have under God's purposes. Even wicked governing authorities have been given by God for set purposes. To, one of them is to, to maintain order. Now we think that they, they could do a much better job on that, and at times they definitely could. But this is one of the purposes of God's common grace of setting up governing authorities. So God is using these governing authorities for his ultimate purposes, even wicked Rome. Remember that, that in here, when Romans 13, this isn't even Tiberius anymore. This is Emperor Nero. One of the most wicked leaders who's ever been on the planet, who who's, would have burning... Christians at his garden parties to light up his garden party. A wicked, wicked man. 
But Nero was God's plan A. Nero was God's plan A. Our governing authorities are God's plan A. So now just, just again, this has to be really quick, but we'll, we'll spend more time talking about this. If you have more questions, just please don't hesitate to, uh, to, to give me a call or come see me. But, but, but 1, Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now the context in 1 Peter is, is suffering for righteousness' sake under unjust authorities. Okay, so it's submission to authority here in, 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 in uh, chapter 2, 13 to 17. It's, it's sub submission to unjust governments. Again, in view here is Nero. To un and in 18 to the end of the chapter, it's slaves submitting to unjust masters. And then in chapter 3, 1 to 7, it's, it's wives submitting to unjust husbands. So, so the, the morality of the authority does not negate the necessity of obedience. Because again, ultimately your obedience is obedience to God. So chapter two, first Peter chapter two, thirteen. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the Emperor Nero, as supreme, now not supreme above God, but supreme as the national authority. And then down in it goes on to say we, we live as people who are are free, not using our freedom to cover up from evil, but living as servants of God. So again, this we're ultimately living as servants of God under, say under this, in this case, under Roman rule, under wicked Roman rule. And then verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And this, was, this verse really was one of many that, but, that, that, that the Lord used to, to guide my thinking and, and Joshua's thinking as we, as we navigated the issues of, of COVID-19 and our response to to the, the, the governing authorities. Trying to, trying to hold up the, these four commands and their commands and, and trying to say, okay, how, how can we seek to do all of these in this particular moment, in this particular situation? As we, we talk to the, to the children, the, the submission to the governing authorities is part of, it's in view in the fifth commandment. Right? Honoring all forms of authority as far as you can. So again, when it comes to then to here in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 of, of taking these, these four things, again, we're trying, to, we're trying to, to hold them up at the same time. And there's going to be times, though, that, that, the, that the interest of, of one is going to compete with the interests of another. So, so what do you do in that, in that moment? Well, this is where you, you, you do triage. You look at the things that are, are important. And so biblically, the order of importance here in 1 Peter 2.17 is ultimately the fear of God. It's all under the fear of God. And then love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then honor everyone, your, your neighbors, including un unbelievers. And then and honor the emperor. And so we, we seek to do all of these things out of submission to God. We must, by God's grace, seek to do them all in the context, again, of a holy fear of God. And there might be different understandings and, and, and good discussions about, about where the line is meant to be drawn in, in each of these cases. You might even disagree with the, the order that I presented. And I believe there's a place for that in the local church. 
In fact, I think it's healthy in the local church to have, have different understandings represented. And that's, we have that here. Praise God. Again, so long as it is done out of reverence of God and conscious of the fact that, that God sent his son to break down the, the wall of hostility between us and him and between us and each other. And so there's a time and place to, to go against what the government is telling you to do. But, but you need to be very careful that you're doing it all out of reverence for God. Turn with me for a moment, please, to Acts chapter 4. Here in Acts chapter 4, I mentioned this earlier during our prayer, but we had Peter and John before the council, before the Sanhedrin. So the, the same council that had come after Jesus. And so they, they command Jesus, or they, so they command Peter and John, in verse, uh, verse 18, they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so these, the Sanhedrin threatened them and then let them go. But they didn't find a way to punish them, because again, because of the people. For the people were praising God about what they had seen and heard. So again, you, you need to, to know God's word and, and you need to, to seek by God's grace to obey God's word in, in light of, of these competing influences and competing, competing commands. And it's not my, my, my job to, to outline the details of what you need to do in every area. Again, if you want to come to me, I'll happy, happily talk to you about these things, but it's, it's not my job to, to require on, on these, these things that are at a offer. There's things that are really not, they're not areas of primary importance. They're external things. It's not my job to command you on these things from God's Word. But I need to say, I've heard a lot about conscience over the last couple of years. We need to understand that your conscience is a guard, not a guide. Right? Your, your conscience needs to be informed by the Word of God. I think a lot of people have an unbiblical understanding of the conscience. But what, what is, what is in, in classical theology, the Reformers and whatnot, they, they spoke of, of the conscience as, as an awareness, consciousness of God's judgment. That's what the conscience meant, a consciousness of God's judgment. And so a, a good conscience, being an inward integrity of heart, not, by, not seeking to, to live according to the law, but living by faith. That's what Calvin meant by the conscience. And so we need to ask the question. You need, you need to ask the question, are you justifying a rebellious attitude to the government or anyone with your conscience? Frankly, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm concerned with the attitude coming from some Christians about the government. And I'm not speaking consciously about anybody here except myself. I have to admit that, that, that 
that I was bothered by, by many of the decisions that the government made. The, the, the whole COVID thing, it, it affected, it chafed against my flesh. And this most recent round, it does, does, it, a lot of it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not charged. I don't have the same authority, thankfully, as our governing authorities. But it frankly bothered me that that because of the, the mandates that I, I couldn't go in and see my parents for Christmas. And it bothered me that, it, that well, actually, in, in one sense, I kind of laughed at it, but that it, it took a, a sewage explosion in our basement to open the door for me to be able to, to see my parents at Christmas time and help me to see God's providence over all things. But as we think about this culture, think about where we live and things we talked about earlier during the, during our, our the, the pastoral prayer, I, I'm deeply disturbed, deeply disturbed by the normalization and the celebration and the legislation of wickedness by our political officials at every level of government. It is horrific. But is our government any more wicked than that of ancient Rome? Let me ask you the, the question that I try to, answer, try to ask myself. Is your heart I can't answer for you. Before God answer this, is your heart to submit to the governing authorities as much as you possibly can out of submission to God? Is your heart to submit to the governing authorities as much as you possibly can out of submission to God? That's what Jesus is teaching here in, in Luke 20. This is as one practical example. Think about, about Matthew 5.41. This is where and this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus taught the ethic of the kingdom of God. He said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, the context of this, and we've talked about this before, the context of this is, is that under the law of the Roman occupying army, a Roman soldier could compel a Jewish citizen to carry his gear for a mile. And Jesus says, go with him two miles. Go with him two miles. Take his gear for two miles. Now, this is an unjust law from an occupying army. And Jesus is saying, go out of your way to submit to that. I think the big picture here is that, that we need to strive to make sure that the only offense that we give is the gospel. The only offense that we give is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's going to be times as those who belong to Christ when we have to say, no, that crosses a line. You cannot go there. And each of us will stand before God and give an account for how we've done that. But again, our heart needs to be to submit as far as we possibly can. And that's hard for me. That's hard for me. Remember, I was the punk rocker with the blonde mohawk. I love rebellion. I live for rebellion. And it's still in my heart. But praise God, I have a new heart that's giving me new desires, and I'm, I'm trying to strive after obedience. And, and I usually recognize it, maybe not as quickly as I should, but, but by God's grace, I'm growing in my desire to submit to these things. 
So, so we've seen now that the trap is sprung, but who actually got caught in the trap? These spies got caught in their own trap. And so let's see finally and very briefly the trappers silenced. Verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. They had tried to either get Jesus to go to be in conflict with the Romans and get handed over to the Romans for crucifixion or to be or to, or, or to be silenced before the people and viewed as being no real authority at all, the, the Sanhedrin could resume their particular place as the spiritual authorities in Israel. But they couldn't catch Jesus. They thought they had him, but he had them. He had them. They marveled and were silenced. Again, Jesus' answer silenced those who tried to trap him. The Sadducees are going to try, as we'll see next week again, Lord willing. But it's a fool's errand. Jesus is again going to, to use their question as a teachable moment to teach important truths about eternal life. So Jesus turned it around and, and used their question for his purposes. Jesus used the spies' question to free people. He used this question to show people how they are how in that culture they are free to serve God in spite of Rome. How they could make even service, service to Rome service to God. And shows us how as, as Christians, whether it's here in Canada or, or whether it's in Pakistan or, or whether it's in China or, or any other of, of two or three dozen other countries, that under any system of government, you can be a faithful Christian because government subsumes its proper place under authority to God. So as Jesus explains, the, the Christian's obedience does not mean rebellion against Rome or any government, but the Christian's obedience transcends Rome and transcends any earthly government. The Christian's obedience transcends all human government. So Jesus had asked those spies to, to show him a coin. And that coin bore the image of Caesar who claimed to be God. But here was one who didn't just claim to be God, who was God, who is God. And he was speaking to men who bear the image of God. You and I, all human beings, bear the image of God. We all belong to Him. We all will give an account for our obedience to Him or our lack of obedience to Him. But as Christians, we belong to God in another way. We don't just bear His image, but the Son bore, the, the, bore our image in His body. And he bore our sin in his body on the tree as, as he took on human flesh and was punished for sin. Not for his sins, he was sinless, but for our sins, for the sins of his people for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have been bought with the blood of Christ. 
Yes, you bear his image as, a, as, a, as a, an image bearer of God. But you belong to Christ as his possession. As he purchased you from death and from the wrath of God. From your, that your sins justly deserve. So here in this human conflict, and then the, the conflict that takes place between you and God when you chafe against His commandments, maybe even this one. Only man is guilty. But Jesus bore the guilt. Will you entrust yourself, your life, to Christ? Unbeliever. Will you turn away from your sin and put your faith in Christ? Be purchased back from death by his death. Will you give your life to him as your Lord and as your Savior? Brother Christian, Sister Christian, will you consciously remind yourself that you belong to Jesus? Lock, stock, and barrel. Body, soul, and spirit, you are Christ's. He has the only legitimate claim on you, a claim that you do not even have for yourself. Will you strive by His grace and for His glory to submit to Him in all things, even to submit to those authorities that He has placed over you, trusting yourself to the just judge, committing your way to Him and knowing that He will somehow use even the difficulties, even the challenges as our brothers and sisters even face death. He will use these things for your good and ultimately for his glory. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we have considered things that are on one level difficult to understand but are far more difficult to do. In fact, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, we cannot even begin to do this. Lord, I pray that you would grant regeneration, that you would grant new hearts to unbelievers, that they might turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And Lord, for those of us who already do belong to Christ, help us, Lord, to be conscious of the fact that we are Christ's, that he ultimately has the say over every aspect of life. Help us, I pray, to walk in obedience. Help us, Lord, to die to our flesh and to submit to you in every area. Strengthen us, I pray, to submit in those areas that are difficult for us. That we might become more like Christ. That we might display your authority and your reign over all things as you reign in and over us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.